0: Chapter Seventeen of The Young Railroaders. This Liebervax recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Young Railroaders by F. Lovell Coombs. Chapter Seventeen Wilson Again Distinguishes Himself. It was decidedly warm the following Monday noon at Bonepile and Wilson Jennings, his coat off but wearing the fancy Mexican sombrero that the bar-o-cowman had given him, sat in the open window to catch the breeze that blew through from the rear. From the window Wilson could not see the wagon-trail toward the hills to the west. Thus it was that the low thud of hoofs first told him of someone's hurried approach. Starting to his feet he stepped to the end of the platform. At sight of a horseman coming toward him at full speed— and leading a second horse, saddled but riderless, Wilson gazed in surprise. Wonder increased when, as the rider drew nearer, he recognized Muskoka Jones, the big barrow cowman. "'What is it, Muskoka?' he shouted as the ponies approached. The cowpuncher pulled up all standing within a foot of the platform. "'There's been an explosion at the pine load, kid, and ten men are bottled up somewhere in the lower level.' Two men got in through a small hole. The mouth of the mine is blocked, and one of them is tapping on the iron pump-pipe. Bartlett, the mine boss, thinks it may be telegraph-ticking, that maybe Young knows something about that. Will you come up and listen? You see, if they knew what was what inside, they'd know what they could do. They are afraid to blast the big rock that's blocking the mouth for fear of bringing loosened stuff down on the men who have been caught.' Wilson was running for the station door. "'I'll explain to the dispatcher,' he shouted over his shoulder. "'I, I, X,' responded the dispatcher. "'There's been an explosion in the pine-load mine,' sent Wilson rapidly. "'And a man has been sent to take me there to try and read some tapping from the men inside. Can you give 144 and the mail clearance from Q, and let me go up?' "'Some tapping? What?' "'Oh, I understand. "'Okay, go ahead,' ticked the dispatcher. "'Get back as soon as possible.' "'I will.' "'All right, Muskoki," cried Wilson, hastening forth, struggling into his coat as he ran. "'Get round thar,' shouted the cowboy, swinging the spare pony to the platform. Wilson went into the saddle with a neat bound. "'Say, you've seen a hoss before, kid.' observed Muskoka with surprise, as he threw over the reins. "'Sure I have. Used to spend my summer vacations on a farm. Can ride a bit standing up,' said Wilson, with pride. They swung their animals about together, and were off on the jump. As the two ponies stretched out to their full stride, the cowboy eyed Wilson's easy seat with approval. "'Well, kid,' he observed, after a moment's silence, Next time I come across a dude, I'll get him to do his tricks before I brand him. I don't see but what you sit about as good as I do. Wilson's pleased smile gave place to gravity as he returned to the subject of the explosion. "'When did it happen?' he asked. "'Early this morning. Just after the men went in. They're not sure, but think it was powder stored at the foot of the shaft down to the lower level.' the main lead of the pine-load, you know. Runs straight into the mountain, not down, and the shaft to the lower level is a ways in. We heard the noise at the Bar-O. "'There's nothing much to see or do, though,' the cowboy added as they raced along, neck and neck. A big rock just over the entrance came down, and when they got the dirt away, they found it had bottled the thing up like a cork.' It's that they are afraid to blast until they know how the men are fixed inside. Hoover and Young got in through a small hole at the top. Hoover about half an hour before Young. He started tapping on the pipe, too, then stopped. They don't know what's happened to him. Twenty minutes' hard riding brought them to the foothills. Still at the gallop the ponies were urged up a winding, rocky trail, and finally a tall black chimney and a group of rough buildings came into view. "'There it is!' said the cowboy, indicating a ledge just above. As they went forward, still at full speed, Wilson gazed toward the mine entrance with some astonishment. Mine disasters he had always thought of as scenes of great excitement—people running to and fro, wringing their hands, excited crowds held back by ropes, and men calling and shouting. Here, about a spot but little distinguished from the rest of the rocky, sparsely treed mountainside was gathered a group of perhaps fifty men, some sitting on beams and rocks, others moving quietly about, all smoking. On their being discovered, however, there was a stir, and as Muskoka and the boy dismounted at the foot of a rough path, and ascended, there was a general movement of the miners and cowmen to meet them. "'I got him,' Muskoka announced briefly to a grizzle-haired man who met them at the top. "'This is Bartlett, the mine-boss.' he said to Wilson, by way of introduction. The boss nodded. "'It tapping's going on yet, is it, Joe?' Uh, "'No, it stopped, just like Hoover's did,' was the gloomy response. Uh, "'Just when we were getting on to it ourselves.' The speaker held up a small board, penciled with figures and letters. Redden there hit on the idea that maybe— Young was knocking out the numbers of letters in the alphabet, and we made this table, and just found out we had it right when the tapping stopped. That was twenty minutes ago, and we haven't had another knock since. Let's see it. What did you get up? There. Twenty, seven, five, twenty, twenty-one, sixteen. T. Get up. "'Something about can't get up, we figured it. But it's not enough to be of any use. And there's not another man here can wriggle in through the hole,' went on the boss, turning toward the great rock which sealed the mouth of the mine. "'A dozen of them tried it, and Redding got stuck so we had to get a rope on him, nearly pulled his legs off.' Wilson made his way forward, and examined the strangely blocked entrance— The small hole referred to was a triangular-shaped opening about a foot in height, and some sixteen inches in width, apparently just at the roof of the gallery. Some minutes Wilson stood studying it, pondering. Finally he turned about with an air of decision, and returned to Muskoka and the mine boss. "'I have a plan,' he announced. "'If you will go back to the station again, Muskoki, I'll send for another operator and go in the mine myself.' Two operators could talk backwards and forwards, easily on the piping, and— "'But where's the other operator?' interrupted the cowboy. "'There is a freight due at the station, in about twenty-five minutes. I can give you a message to hand the engineer for the operator at Ledges, the next station. A message asking the dispatcher to send the Ledges operator down on the mail. Someone could wait for him—' or if there is no hitch, he'd be here inside of an hour and a half. That'll work, exclaimed the boss. That's it. You'll go, Muskoki. Certainly. I'll get a fresh hoss and wait for him myself. Wilson, finding an envelope in his pocket, dropped to a boulder and began writing. W.B.J., Exeter, he scribbled. Am at the mine. The tapping is stopped. No one else can go in, so I'm going myself. Please send down Operator from Ledges to read my tapping if I'm unable to return. Jettings. "'Redding? Where's Red?' shouted Muskoka as he folded the message. "'Here. What?' "'I'm going back to the station for another operator. I'm going to take your Johnny-hoss. Mine's blowed.' "'Sure, yes,' agreed the owner, and with a "'Good luck, kid.' Muskoka was clattering down the path. "'Now, Mr. Bartlett, will you please explain the plan of things inside? Just how the tunnel runs?' requested Wilson. "'Have a seat, and I'll draw it,' said the boss, setting the example. He turned the board bearing the fragmentary message, and Wilson dropped down beside him. "'The main gallery, the old lead, runs straight in at about this dip down,' he said, drawing as he spoke runs back 550 feet, and ends. That was where the old lead petered out. Here, about 200 feet from the entrance, is a vertical shaft, 90 feet, that we put down to pick up the old pine-knot lead. It's from the foot of that the new gallery, the lower level, starts. It slopes off just under the old lead, so 330 feet— there's a fault, and it cants up twelve feet. So. Then on down again at a bit sharper dip, nearly six hundred feet, then another fault, and a drop, and about fifty feet more. It's down there at the end we think most of the men have been caught, but some may have been near the shaft. The pumping pipe where Hoover and Young must have been tapping is here, halfway between the first and second faults, where it comes down through a boring from the old gallery. It must have been at that point, because we had disconnected two leaking sections just below there, only this morning. "'How do you get down the shaft to the lower level?' Wilson asked. There was a ladder, but it was smashed by the explosion. Hoover, the first man in, came out for a rope, so I suppose that's there now. Young must have gone down by it.' Hoover also reported that the roof of the old gallery was in bad shape, just over the shaft. That's the particular reason we are afraid to blast the rock here, until we know whether any of the men were caught at the bottom of the pit. Wilson arose and began removing his collar. "'How about water, Mr. Bartlett, since the pump is not working?' he inquired. "'Unless the explosion tapped new water, there'll be no danger for twenty-four hours at least.' "'But if the drain-channel of the lower gallery has been filled, the floor will be very slippery,' the mine boss added. "'It's slate, and we left it smooth as a runway for the ore-boxes.' As the young operator removed his spotless collar, one similar to that which had so aroused the cowman's derision on his first day at Pile, without a smile one of the very men who had formed the welcoming committee that day rubbed his hands on his shirt took it carefully, and placed it on a clean plank. "'You'll want a lamp. Somebody give the boy a cap and lamp,' the boss directed. A dozen of the miners whipped off caps with attached lamps, and trying several, Wilson found one to fit. Then, buttoning his coat and turning up the collar, he made his way to the rock-sealed entrance, and climbed up to the narrow opening. "'I'll tap as soon as I reach the pipe,' He said, So long! and without more ado crawled head first within and disappeared. The lamp on his cap lighting up the narrow trough-like tunnel, Wilson easily wormed his way forward ten or twelve feet. Then the passage contracted and became broken and twisted. However, given confidence by the knowledge that others had passed through, Wilson squeezed on. There presently came a widening of the hole, then a black opening, and with a final effort he found himself projecting into the black depths of the empty gallery. Below him the debris sloped to the floor. Pulling himself free, he slid and scrambled down and quickly was on his feet, breathing with relief. Only pausing to brush some of the dust from his clothes, Wilson hastened forward. Two hundred feet distant, a windlass took shape in the obscurity. He reached it— and the black opening of the shaft to the lower level was at his feet. Looking, he found the rope the mine-boss had spoken of. It was secured to one of the windlass supports, and disappeared into the depths on the opposite side of the pit. Directly below was the shattered wreck of the ladder. Leaning over, Wilson shouted, "'Hello! Hello!' The words crashed and echoed in the shaft and about him, but there was no reply." Once more he shouted, then resolutely suppressing his instinctive shrinking, he made his way about to the rope, carefully lowered himself, and began descending hand under hand. Wilson had not gone far when, with apprehension, he found the rope becoming wet and slippery with drip from the rocks above. Despite a tightened grip, his hands began to slip. In alarm he wound his feet about the rope. Still he slipped— To dry a hand on his sleeve, he freed it. Instantly, with a cry, he found himself shooting downward. He clutched with hands, feet, and knees, but onward he plunged. In the light of his lamp, the jagged broken timbers of the shoring shot up by him. He would be dashed to pieces. But desperately he fought, and at last got the rope clamped against the corner of a heel, and the speed was retarded. A moment after, he landed with an impact that broke his hold on the rope and sent him in a heap on his back. Rising, Wilson thankfully discovered he had escaped injury other than a few bruises, and gazed about him. At first sight, he appeared to be in the bottom of a well filled with broken, water-soaked timbers and grey, dripping rock. He knew there must be an exit, however, and set about looking for it, at the same time listening and watching shrinkingly for signs of anyone buried in the heap of stone and timber. Not a sound, save the monotonous drip of seeping water was to be heard, however, and presently behind a shield of planking he located the black mouth of a small opening. Dropping to his knees, he crawled through, and stood upright in a downward-sloping gallery similar to that above, the lower level. Once more he shouted, "'Hello! Hello!' The clashing echoes died away without response, and he started forward. Scarcely had he taken a half-dozen steps when, without warning, his feet shot out from under him, and he went down on his back with a crash, barely saving his head with his hands. The smooth, hard rock was as slippery as ice from the water flowing over it. Wondering if this icy declivity had anything to do with the failure of Hoover and Young to return, Wilson arose and went on more cautiously. As he proceeded, the walking became more and more treacherous— Several times he again went down, saving himself by sinking onto his outstretched hands. On rising from one of these falls, Wilson discovered something which sent him ahead with new concern. A few yards farther, he halted with an exclamation on the brink of a yellow stretch of water that met the gallery roof twenty feet beyond him. Blankly he gazed at it. Then he recalled the fault the mine-boss had spoken of, an abrupt rise of the gallery, twelve feet. This must be it. Its drain had choked and filled it with water. But both Hoover and Young had passed it. The pipe they had tapped upon was beyond. They must have waded boldly in, dove or ducked down, and come up on the other side. At the thought of following them in this, Wilson drew back. Had he not better return? Could he, though? could he ascend a rope down which he had been unable to prevent himself sliding the answer was obvious desperately wilson decided to venture the water to reach those he now knew were on the other side and the pumping pipe in preparation he first securely wrapped the matches he carried in notepaper taken from an envelope and placed them in the top of the miner's hat then removing his shoes to give him firmer footing he stepped into the yellow pool and carefully made his way forward. Six feet from the point at which the water met the top of the gallery, the water was up to his chin, and he saw he must swim for it and dive. Without pause, lest he should lose his nerve, he struck out, reached the roof, took a deep breath, and ducked down. Three quick hard strokes and he arose, and with a gasp found himself at the surface again. A few strokes onward in the darkness, and his hands met a rough wall, over which the water was draining as over the brink of a dam. At the same moment a sound of dull blows reached his ears. Spluttering and blinking, Wilson drew himself up. A shout broke from him. Far distant and below was a point of light. "'Hello! Hello!' he cried. Immediately came a chorus of response, as though many were excitedly shouting at once. Unable to distinguish anything from the jangle of echoes, Wilson cried back, Are you all safe? Again came the clashing, incomprehensible shout. I'm coming down! he called, though not sure that they heard him. Producing the matches from the crown of the hat, he found they had come through dry, and after some difficulty, lighting one against the side of another, he relit the lamp. While at this, voices continued to come up to him, evidently shouting something but try as he could he was unable to make out what was said. It was all a reverberating clamour, as though a hundred people were talking at once. As the lamp spluttered up, after the ducking which had extinguished it, Wilson gazed down the gallery before him with a touch of new dismay. The water was flowing over it in a thin, glossy coat, and it was considerably steeper than on the outer side of the fault. Apparently the only thing to do was to slide." Working about into a sitting position, facing down the slope, with feet spread out as though steering a sleigh, Wilson allowed himself to go. The rapidity with which he gained momentum startled him. Soon the grey damp walls were passing upward like a glistening mist. With difficulty he kept his feet foremost. Meantime the voices from below had continued shouting. Onward he slid, and the sounds became clearer— At last the words came to him. They were, THE PIPE! THE PIPE! CATCH THE PUMP-PIPE! Then Wilson suddenly recollected that the pipe was but halfway down the slope. Digging with his heels, he sought to slow up, gazing first at one flitting wall, then the other. On the right, a vertical streak of black appeared. He clutched with heels and hands and sought to steer toward it. He swept nearer and reached with outstretched hand— The effort swung him sideways, his fingers just grazed the iron, and, twisting about, he shot downward headfirst at greater speed than ever. A moment after, there was a chorus of shouts, a sharp cry in his ears, an impact, a rolling and tumbling, a second crash, and Wilson felt himself dragged to his feet. About him, in a single flickering light, was a group of strange faces. While he gazed, dazed, rubbing a bruised head, all talked excitedly, even angrily. "'Why didn't you hang on, you idiot?' demanded a voice. "'Who is it, anyway? It's a stranger.' "'And a boy!' said another. Wilson recovered his scattered wits, and quickly explained who he was and what he had come for. Immediately there was a joyful shout. "'We'll be out inside of an hour!' cried one. "'But how am I going to get up to the pipe?' demanded Wilson. "'We are cutting footholds up the incline.' "'White, get back on the job,' directed the speaker, whom Wilson later learned was the fire-boss. "'You brought him down with you,' he added to the boy. The man spoken to began creeping up the water-covered slope, dragging a pick, and Wilson turned to look about him. The eleven men in the party, not including the man on the slope, were crowded together on the level floor of what evidently was the lower fault of the lead. From the darkness beyond came the sound of water trickling to a lower level. "'Are all here, and no one hurt?' he asked. "'Hoover and Young and everybody, and not one scratched,' responded the fire-boss. "'You were the one nearest hurt.' "'You were a mighty plucky youngster.' he added, to come through that water up there. Wilson interrupted a chorus of hearty assent. "'What happened to Hoover and Young at the pipe?' he inquired. "'That mystified everybody outside.' They both caught it coming down, but Hoover lost his hold trying to change hands for tapping, and Young dropped the knife he was knocking with and slipped fishing for it, the fire-boss explained. Meantime, at the entrance to the mine, a half hour having passed without a knocking on the pipe to announce the arrival inside of the young operator, anxiety began to be felt for his safety also. When another half hour had passed and there was still no response to frequent tappings of inquiry, the mine boss, Bartlett, began to stride up and down before the blocked entrance. I shouldn't have allowed him to go in, he muttered repeatedly. He was only a boy." When at length Muskoka Jones reappeared on the scene and, with him, the operator from Ledges, Bartlett met them with a gloomy face. At that very moment, however, there was a shout from the men gathered about the pumping pipe. "'He's knocking!" cried a voice. Bartlett, Muskoka, and the Ledges operator went forward on the run. The latter dropped to his knees and placed his ear to the pipe. At the quick smile of comprehension which came into his face, a great cheer went up. It was immediately stilled by a gesture from the operator, and in tense silence he caught up a stone, tapped back a signal, then read aloud Wilson's strangely telegraphed words of the safety of the men below, their situation, and the means to be taken to reach them. And just at sunset the bedraggled but joyful, cheering party of rescuers and rescued— Emerged from the entrance. Wilson to a reception he will remember as long as he lives. The most important result of Wilson's courage and resourcefulness, however, was an interview Alex Ward had that evening at Exeter with the division superintendent. Following a recital of Wilson's feat at the mine, Alex added, "'You said last week, Mr. Cameron, that I might suggest a third operator for the Yellow Creek Construction Advance Guard of operators,' I'd like to suggest Jennings, sir.' "'He is appointed, then,' said the superintendent. "'Go and tell him yourself.' End of chapter